0: Well, tonight we return actually to the series we've been doing on the Ten Commandments and uh, we've reached the Third Commandment. And uh, well, that's Exodus 20, verse 7, or as we read there in the parallel accounts as Moses uh, quoted the Ten Commandments to the people of God on the plains of Moab. So it be Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. And so the heading is taking care how we speak, taking care how we speak. The second commandment very much puts a curb on the use of our imaginations and thinking when it comes to the worship of God, what we can bring in our worship, how we are to consider God in our worship and how we're not to consider him. And the third commandment is a curb and a check to our speech. In a way, it's a check to all our speech, to be careful in how we speak, but especially when we're speaking about or speaking to God. And Really, everything stems in that way from the first commandment. And here, when we're told that we are to have no other gods before him, Deuteronomy 5 and verse 7. And because there are no other gods, there is no other beside him, then how we think about him, worship him, what we allow ourselves to do by way of considering him, but then also how we speak about him is going to be distinctive because he is distinctive and there's a weight, a gravity to what we're doing because of who he is, that there is no other god. Therefore, we hallow his name and we hallow it, among other ways, in our speech. We set him apart. And therefore, when we speak of him, we set him apart in our speech. We hold him in high regard as a first priority. Thus, whatever we say about him has to have about it a sincerity, an authenticity and a reality which is demanded by the fact that he is God. And that there is no other God. We're to have no other gods before him. Just to look at some of the words that there are in this commandment, the idea of taking, take the name of the Lord your God in vain or rather do not. Then the idea of taking means lifting up and lifting up in a kind of public way, drawing attention to him, making, as it were, audible, visible Uh, drawing people's attention to him that they might watch on. Well, that we have to be careful when we do that, when we are drawing attention to his name, lifting it up. And then the idea of what that name is. Well, that's the revelation of who God is, self-existent God, creator, judge, all-powerful, all-glorious, all-gracious. And as we therefore take up the name of this particular being, God in other words, then we have to ensure that we're not doing it in vain. The idea of vain there means to make something empty, to empty it, to make it, well, waste it, to have it almost regarded as as of no worth, rubbish, suck all of the meaning out of it, to leave it sort of desolate, and lacking what it should have had by right. And so it's possible then to take the name of God and that name therefore implies who he is to make it visible, audible, to draw attention to it, but do it in such a way that actually disrespects, empties God's name of the power and the glory that it deserves. And so that's where we Find ourselves here taking care how we speak, especially when we speak of God. My first heading, casual blasphemy. Because of course, blasphemy is what this amounts to here. That when you treat the things of God, treat God in a way that is disrespectful to him, then that is blasphemous. And there is a lot of casual blasphemy in our culture. I like guess other cultures, too, just as the talk has been, hasn't it, about casual racism? Well, there's a lot of casual blasphemy out there and about there, a casual mistreatment of the name of God. It's painful to hear when we do hear it, we wince at it. We feel disappointed about it. We feel we'd rather not hear that. And we feel something about the people who are saying it. And you think, being so ignorant, you do not know the person of whom you are speaking how great he is. There you are using it in a rather wrong, totally out of context way and with no thought. Careless, casual blasphemy. Whether this is an accurate observation, let's fly it anyway and see. But particularly on this women, women's phone, the younger women, the taking of God's name there in vain and just writing God's name in that way. Perhaps as an expression of shock, or surprise, or amazement, or wonder. And often that's how it's expressed. And young people say that, not so young people say it, and uh, say it with great force and great emphasis, and often with a kind of look on their face when they do it. But well, that's a casual blasphemy. They're not as if they're thinking, going out of their way to be disobedient not thinking seriously about the God whose name they've just taken on their lips. They're not placing his name in a, in a kind of context where his name belongs. So maybe some silly thing they've seen on the Internet or some bit of YouTube or some little bit of news or other which really doesn't warrant the expression that they bring. It's exaggerated, but out comes that blasphemy, thoughtless, ignorant, learnt behaviour just what's other people saying it's just adopted as such and uh, so it gets perpetuated and often those people mean no offense by it and if they realize that actually we're offended when we hear it and wince when we hear a slighting of God's name such people often as it were put their hand over their mouth and say sorry I, I didn't mean it I didn't mean to offend you uh, and I won't say it again and and then they self-censor when they're in our presence and, and they don't use it again. We appreciate that and, and often smile and grateful that they, they have thought about it, more careful about how they are speaking. As they may just say that and it means nothing in a way, they mean no offence, and suddenly realise they've caused offence by their casual blasphemy and then often want to kind of walk it back and to say sorry and really didn't mean to offend. And, and they didn't either. And they weren't thinking deliberately about God's name when they said it, and so we understand where it is. Atheists, I guess, often do use his name very boldly, very brazenly to offend, as if to court, as it were, God's thunderbolt from heaven upon themselves. When it doesn't come, ah, well, and on they go. But that's not so much casual blasphemy in that way there. But a lot of it is in our culture, it is true. But now more serious things. Second heading, false teaching and hypocrisy. False teaching and hypocrisy. Yes, in some way, wanting to be seen to be taking God's name, at least in measure, seriously. But actually, you're not. There's something else going on here which voids it of its power, takes away from it what respect was apparently going to be lent to it. And here there are some very obvious and very clear failures. And that's false teaching, false teachers who may be full of Christ talking about Him every other word, if you will, talking about the Bible and making great play of that but actually guilty of misrepresenting him, taking his name, but misrepresenting him, taking out of context what scripture teaches about him, wrenching out of its proper position what the Bible would have us learn about him. Sometimes it's outright heresy. So it's when his divinity is denied. Where's his name? And he may be respected, he's a great person, great prophet indeed. Oh, yes, he's a very spiritual man. But he wasn't God, you know. That's heresy. That is very much taking his name in vain. That's blasphemy. You have slighted him. You have disrespected him, spoken of him wrongly. Then there is down from heresy, but error, where there's something, something of the truth there and something a bit better than heresy, but we're still, it's misleading. And something is being said of him, or some actions are being imputed to him. But that is not true. He wouldn't have done that. That's not how he said that. It's not what he meant when he said that. So it is a false Christ that is being held out to us. And that, that is blasphemous. That's taking his name in vain. Or there is speaking of him from bad motives and aims. Where it might actually be orthodox. Where it might actually even be helpful. But where the motives are not good, and the aims are certainly not spiritual. And those aims can be manifestly false aims, self-glory, power, money, control, influence. That can be how it goes there. Well, you know, this idea of numbers and power and, and significance. Well, there I am, the dream on eight but uh, many do find that thing that really gives them the drive and the buzz in ministry. Oh, and they're preaching, yes, sermons that, yes, doctrinally are good and sound, but there's something else going on, and you'll often find out by actually what they get up to, where some of their other thoughts and ambitions lie. You begin to read what really is motivating them, and you'll see some people chop and change their theology if they think actually that's where the the numbers are to be had. That's where you get the profile. Or then they'll drop that teaching and pick up a new one, uh, almost like a change of clothes. So where there are manifestly false aims, and the Bible has quite a bit to say about them. Second Corinthians, chapter four, verses one and two. Therefore, since we have res- had this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so not just the words, but the man that Paul was. He's commending himself to the consciences of the people. That they can say, well, he's not teaching this to get some great sort of kudos here. He's not doing this. There's nothing in him where we think, wait a minute. That makes me uncomfortable. That looks like he's after money from us here. Or that he wants to sort of lord it over us here. And Paul is appealing to their consciences to bear him out. That's not how we behave. We didn't handle the word of God deceitfully, but we manifested the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience. Our aims, our motives were pure and they were good. Or as we find it being spoken of in Titus and chapter one verses 10 to 11. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. There he is, he he nails them there with it, their dishonest gain after money, and they're teaching things which ought not to be taught, and their mouths must be stopped, Titus is told. And if you look on down, in Titus 1 at the end, verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Talk is cheap. You can talk about God and what they know about him, what he said to them. Any number of people there out there telling you they've been to heaven and spoken with him face to face, but by their works, Look at their their houses and the money that they kind of bring to themselves and the dishonesty that goes with it. Well, they deny him. That's not what the Lord would have them be and to do. And so they are disqualified for every good work. The motives were wrong. We had that in second Peter and chapter two, verses one, two, three, these false prophets, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness that exploits you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And then he goes on, doesn't he, to list examples where God does not suffer Wrong things to be said about him or done on his earth and brings judgment there, sparing the godly in that judgment. But we have them there, destructive heresies. They're bringing them into the church. People follow them and the way of truth ends up being blasphemed. People laugh at it, mock it. Rather than respecting God and the use of his name, that these people are doing. What's the other way? They see through them. The world can often see through fake Christians better than Christians can see through fake Christians and fake teachers. And so they're exploiting with their deceptive words. They're using God's name there as a means of gain. And later on in that same chapter in 2nd Peter, just to take verse 19, following on from there. While they promised the people liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption For by whom a person is overcome. By him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It is. They're denying the one who bought them, kind of brought them out of the worst sort of obvious sins. But still, the ruling thing in their heart, they're overcome there and they're in bondage too some master sin, coveting gold, coveting sexual relations, whatever else that it might be. And the Lord will declare he never knew them. That's where you read here, this swift destruction. You read about the, the way in which these people will be very, very firmly dealt with. We can also think of false teaching, in a more specific sense attached to Christ's name. And, well, we'd have to say in say as carefully as we can, and um, not to be disrespectful for the many, many people who believe this, but to believe that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient and that it needs to be repeated. You need a priest, duly qualified, who will say the right words, the right place at the right time, and bring back the very body, the very blood of Christ, because we need it, because we need him to sacrifice himself once more. It is to render null and void the glorious name of Jesus Christ. That's another Jesus and it's not the one you read of the Scripture. It doesn't say on the cross that uh, this needs to be done again, but it says it's finished. And that's all our hope is in that. We rest in that, it's finished. It doesn't need to be repeated, it can't be repeated, it shouldn't be repeated. And to attempt to somehow bring him back and, and rely upon some human agent, some priest to do it. That's why many people bridle at this and say it's blasphemous to say that it's it, taking away God's glory. It's, it's denying his truth. Think too of people who in a way insult God when they say you can lose your salvation. That somehow again did on the cross. He said it is finished, but he didn't really mean it. Uh, and that we can lose our salvation. Well, that's an insufficient Christ and an insufficient cross. I offer the thought, really, that borderline blasphemy. It's taking his name in vain. It's stripping it of its glory, taking away from what he has done by way of his love and compassion. And then just a few more instances speaking as if from God. Well, that's that's a big thing to do. It's talking as though you're speaking the very word of God. We really humbly offer the thought that that ended with the closing of the canon of Scripture. And, well, there's been all kinds of ridiculous things, quite wrong things that have been prophesied and spoken as if by revelation. One of the most uh, bizarre ones that uh, I'd ever heard was that, uh, this was Benny Hinn who was guilty of this one, but uh, teaching that uh, as there are three persons of the Trinity, was well, actually three persons of each person of the Trinity. So there are actually nine persons of the Trinity, Well, get your head around that one there, pure heresy. And uh, all the events that people prophesy, oh, they can put some energy into it there, perspire, and thus saith the Lord, and revival is coming. We were talking about revival earlier and praying very much it does, but we can't put a date to it or a time to it, but these people do. Tell you it's going to start in such and such a location. And we've seen so many of those, 30, 40 years worth of seeing them, hearing them. And I'm afraid we still report, don't we, it hasn't happened. And false experiences that get attributed to the Holy Spirit. Mm, lots of people do this, weird happenings, weird and strange doctrines. We're thinking of those a little bit this morning and they come them weirder. And some of the things that are attributed to the work and agency of the Holy Spirit. Well, think of that holy spirit oh that's god oh, that's god's name and to attribute to him the madness that takes place often in his name well again one has to say that's taking his name in vain that's that's holding up his name and then kind of destroying it uh, as a pelting it with rubbish by the things that we are saying that he's doing and the world looks on the world isn't impressed and thinks we're fools for doing it the wider church And thinks therefore that's God. Well, we can dismiss him, and they blaspheme him. So we see these things, and that's just a brief kind of tour through uh, some of the worst of these things. But they're not held guiltless, and we read that in Second Peter: swift destruction follows destructive ways that they have. They're actually in the process of destroying themselves, and uh, that that is where we read of God not holding them guiltless. And sometimes it is that their, their folly becomes more manifest. They, they go from bad to worse. They're, they embrace even more foolish things. They become more irrational. And you see them sort of disintegrating in some way or other, or other difficulties and hardships that come upon them in that way. But moving on, final heading, the sad fact. What is the sad fact? Well, the sad fact is that this commandment. Actually, like all commandments, who can keep it? Who truly can say, Ah, yes, that's a commandment that I keep. I don't do casual blasphemy. I'm not a heretic. I don't go around saying all these weird things or the Holy Spirit. Well, well and good. But I'm afraid not good enough, at least not good enough, to really fulfill the letter and the spirit of this commandment, coupling it with the first commandment and Honouring, revering God, having no idols, nothing else there. I think we saw when we looked at the first commandment that we have got a fair few idols there in our hearts that have to be always um, be removed, cut down to size before really we get nearer, nearer to that commandment. But here is the fact, and I fear it is true to say, it may sound depressing wording it like this, but I've got more cheerful things to say in a moment. But we break it every time. We use God's name. We, every time I preach, I'm sure I'm guilty of this. Every time trying to witness to people, guilty of it. Every time that I pray, guilty of it. Every time we sing our hymns, guilty of it. Every time we speak of him. Because we do not, cannot, because of our sin bring to what we say about him, what we sing to him, when we speak to him. that which 100%, whatever it looks like, and we can't get near it, but only the Lord Jesus ever did. Having the glory of God in view or loving him when you sing to him, when you pray to him, when I preach about him uh, with a whole heart, absolute, totally undivided, who is sufficient for these things. When we Pray, preach, sing, but without sufficient conviction or sufficient sincerity. Without bringing absolute faith, and love, or preaching with the necessary energy and fervency and preparation, authority and power. Well, there we are breaking his law time and time and time again. And we confess it. And we have to accept it, we have to own it. But then rather than sinking in the mire and going down the way of Romans chapter seven, looking, well, we wish to do good. We wish every time when we pray, not to be distracted. Every time we're distracted, think of it. Well, God is so glorious. I should be just so consumed with Him. I should be praying with such passion and meaning that I could never be distracted. And yet you and I find ourselves distracted time and time again. Oh, what sorrow? And we could say, who who will deliver us from this body of death? The thing is, then we kind of come out of that sort of negative going down, going down, going down, that we then think, well, I'll never speak his name again because who is sufficient for these things? Well, that's when we then take hold of that burden and we roll it upon our Lord Jesus Christ. We sigh about ourselves and resolve all the more to lean upon him who was the law keeper. That everything he did, did have the glory of God in view, was with absolute love and devotion, was with sufficient conviction, sincerity, faith, love, power, authority, all the things that we can't bring sufficient of, but he did. And we sigh a sigh of relief and we then Lean on him. Again, it is finished, he said. Finished, too, his work of law keeping, all his 33 years of total, absolute obedience to all those commandments in every respect. That was finished. He had shown himself to be the law keeper. He was the end of the law in that way. He was the law keeper. And we want to learn from him. Sure, we do. and We want to get nearer and nearer to him. Sure, we do. We know that who he is and these commandments that still are operative, still in force, that we just can't get near them. We just cannot get near them. But we then turn from what we can't do and turn to what he has already done. And we're very glad in that. and We're very, very happy, very content to see that he's done it. He's kept the law. Where I can't keep it. I simply can't get near it. He did. And I'm relying on him to answer for me in heaven and answer all my failures of law keeping, not, not as a non-Christian here, not all the times about, when we were casual blasphemers. But now when as Christians, we're not speaking of him as we should, when we're not bringing such concentration of all our powers, whatever preach, whatever we pray or take up our hymn books there. Well, no, rather than resolving, that we'll never sing again when we say, well, I'll never preach again. We look to him and we are glad that he has done all of that for us. He has made good all our defects. And therefore, we can, even though we know well, I'm going to break the third commandment here, I just will inevitably do it. But he has kept the law for me. So with the strength God gives me. And as best that I can, bringing the finite resources and our distractions and the dividedness of my heart to the task, then we'll do it anyway. And we'll pray and we'll preach and we'll sing our hymns of praise to God and we'll rely on him to make good all our imperfections. Because we also know it would be wrong not to preach and it would be wrong not to pray. We'd be guilty of a worse crime. And if we didn't pray, or we would be guilty there of a worse crime if we didn't sing his praises. How comfortable we felt when we couldn't sing his praises. Now that was, we well, got a clear command of scripture here, but we, under the mandate that we were given by the government, so we wrestled with that one there. But oh, how glad we were when we could then move validly beyond it, because we felt denying him something that he deserves. And even though our singing isn't uh, there, uh, sung with all the conviction that we should, though we want to sing because he's worthy of that. And whatever may be our insufficiency with we will be done with that. I'm relying on him to get it right for me. So even though it's going to be a bit wrong, quite a lot wrong, rather than not sing, I'm going to sing to his glory. And so the forgiveness and the mercy that we absolutely rely upon, is not a religion of of sternness and austerity and failure being rubbed in our noses but it's a religion of mercy of frail sinful people getting the help of a powerful mighty and holy god reaching down to us showing us what actually is required and showing us his son who did all that was required and so we will draw from him that's what we do don't we? we have the commandments but don't try them on your own but take them with him and bring him into those commandments and bring those commandments with him into our own soul. And there's hope, isn't there? There's hope we might actually progress. There's hope that we may be less hypocritical, less guilty of hypocrisy, less guilty of insincerity, of mixed motives, of false aims, of lacking love or zeal. Maybe there'll be a little bit more fervency. Maybe the Thing will be a little bit more anchored in the glory of God, not the glory of man. I mean, God gives grace, doesn't He, to the humble? His grace to them. who say, Well, we can't do this. This is beyond us, this law. But it wasn't beyond Him. And as we trust in Him, then that grace, the power of the Spirit to live out those commandments a little bit nearer to the true intention, a little less. Filled with insincerity or lack of love or fervency, we might yet see a little bit more progress, a little bit more getting nearer and a little bit nearer and a little bit nearer again to what really, ideally, perfectly we should bring whenever we speak of the name of this great God to whom we are so, so grateful that in His mercy He saved us that we don't have to reach perfection every time but that we can fail I know that our failure is accounted for by him and that strengthened by his love we can repeat our failures but do it with cheerfulness and gladness knowing that much much better to fail in doing what is a duty given to us rather than to attempt not to do it at all so may God help us and giving us proper help in how we speak sure but speak we should speak we must pray we must sing we must and whatever lacking in it is well we'll trust our lord to make good that deficiency and take of our feeble words feeble voices feeble spiritual desires and improve vastly on them through our great high priest in glory